you're listening to Reba Radio, the podcast. From 18th to the 26th of November 2021, our annual inclusion festival took the form of a dedicated radio station broadcast live from the bookshop at the Reba's HQ in London, with me, Marsha Ramroop, the Director of Inclusion at the RIBA, hosting the discussions. Reba Radio, the podcast, is the speech-only content from that radio station, themed and edited for your easy consumption. We suggest you make your way systematically through all episodes from the intro to the end to help you effectively on your inclusion journey. We hope you enjoy it and find it useful and applicable. You're listening to and watching Reba Radio, taking the architecture and built environment on a journey towards better reflecting diversity and leading inclusion with real, inclusive, brilliant action, Reba. And the way we're going to do that is rooted in the concept of CQ, cultural intelligence, which forms the basis of the themes of the programming that we'll be running over the next seven days. But rather than me explaining it all, we're incredibly lucky to have with us the man I call the godfather of cultural intelligence, CQ, Dr. David Livermore. Now, David is the president of the Cultural Intelligence Centre based in Grand Rapids, Michigan in the US. But he joins us here in 66 Portland Place. And well, I'll let him tell you more about himself. So Dave, who are you? Excellent. Thank you, Marcia. Well, as you mentioned, it's my privilege to lead the Cultural Intelligence Center based out of the U.S., but uh, culture is something that has fascinated me for as long as I can remember. Though I, I didn't grow up uh, traveling a lot internationally. My parents are Canadian, but moved to the U.S. just before I was born, uh, but always had this curiosity and interest in different cultures and thankfully found an area of research and work that allowed me to really chase that curiosity. So today we're 20-some years into the research and application of cultural intelligence, and I'm thrilled we have a chance to talk a little bit more about what that means practically for Reba. So you said 20-something years ago you, yeah. you know, fell into this, well, I don't know, did you fall into this work? What, how did you get involved with cultural intelligence research? Yeah, so I was on my own research journey that was linked to some professional work I was doing. Uh, professionally, I was developing leadership development programs for young people in various places around the world. And increasingly, I noticed that we were exporting a very US model of youth leadership development. Uh, simultaneous with that, I was in my doctoral research and I was examining some of this colonialism that existed and the programs that were there. Uh, but my concern was I didn't want to be an academic that just pointed out problems without also offering solutions. And serendipitously, I met Soon Ang, a colleague of mine in Singapore at Nanyang Technological University when we were living there, and I began to learn about the early research that she was doing on CQ. And it was from that point that we decided to collaborate and share uh, some of her very quantitative work together with Lynn Vindine that I now work with at the Cultural Intelligence Center along with my more qualitative work. So what what was it that actually about CQ in itself that drew you to it? It's interesting and in, in some ways what drew me to it also rubbed me a bit the wrong way <laughs> and that was the quantifiable nature of it because coming from my background K-12 
can you ever say culture can just be reduced to some numbers and your, your scores? And yet I also knew what it was like to continually deal with people's frustrations with only talking about nuance and it depends and it's very subjective. Um, and ironically, some of the research in cultural intelligence actually emerged with people in IT and finance who were saying, we don't really get engaged in this diversity stuff. It's all too soft and touchy-feely. But when they saw a quantifiable measurement as a possibility, suddenly they were intrigued. So I think that's where it was kind of a, a diverse research interest even of mine coming very much from we have to look at this holistically and we can't like reduce cultures to lists of do's and don'ts, but likewise saying, do we make it so complicated that people are like, okay, I, I don't feel like I can do anything with it. We'll come back to the it depends because right? it still depends, right? Yes. So um, the Cultural Intelligence Center, your president there, I mean, what does that mean? What do you do? What does the Cultural Intelligence Center do? Yeah, so still at our core, um, we are rooted in this research, this evidence-based approach to helping people work effectively across different cultures. But, you know, the last 10 years, we really set up the, the center as a viable entity about 10 years ago. And we're really focused on how do you come alongside organizations like Reba, like the BBC, like Google, Harvard Business School, who are saying, hey, they have myriad ways that they're trying to deal with cultural differences, internationally, ethnic differences, generationally, organizational cultures. And we come alongside through consulting, the use of our assessments, through training programs to help them build the skill set and capability to work more effectively with different cultures. Okay, so that's what you guys do. And, but then there's this thing, cultural intelligence, yeah. CQ. What is it? Yeah, fair question. So simply defined, cultural intelligence is the capability to work effectively with anyone who comes from a different background than you. Um, usually people say, okay, so you do work in cultural sensitivity. And I say, mm, sort of. Like obviously you have to be sensitive to cultures if you're gonna be culturally intelligent, but you could be culturally sensitive and not be very culturally intelligent. What I mean by that is, Cultural intelligence is a skill set. It's can I actually work effectively with people who have very different backgrounds than I do. So I've, I've actually in the academic space worked with PhDs in intercultural studies who could spout off to you lots of cultural differences but can't for the life of them work with their own colleague who comes from a very different cultural background than them. So cultural intelligence is translating that sensitivity, that awareness, that understanding into actually being able to work together effectively. Why CQ? Mm, that's a question we get a lot. So it's just an abbreviation for cultural intelligence quotient. As you know, uh, the work is really rooted in the study of intelligences. So just as IQ refers to intelligence quotient and EQ, emotional intelligence quotient, CQ is your cultural intelligence. So can you tell me a little bit more about that research background? You talked about working with Sunang and Lynn Van Dyne. What, what is that research? What, what research did they do? Yeah, I'll see if I can be succinct about 20 plus years of research. But where they began is to develop what we call a conceptual framework, a hypothesis about what do we think will predict whether or not people are able to work effectively with different cultures. And so that's where our work is rooted in the multiple intelligences work by Sternberg and Detterman. And so people would more practically know their work through the realm of things like emotional intelligence 
practical intelligence, social intelligence. And in all these different forms of intelligence, there are typically four different competencies, if you will, that help predict how well people would do with that. So as you do in most good research, it started with a hypothesis. We developed hypotheses about how people would behave in each of those areas. And then they began to develop items. I already said I'm not a quantitative researcher, so I take no credit for the instrument. But they began to develop items to say, how people respond to these may give us some indication of how they score in these different facets, these competencies. But then we had to test and find out, are these at all connected to reality? So I might say, oh yes, I'm very interested in different cultures. And all the people who work with me are like, uh, I've never seen that out of him. And so we had to keep working on the validation of it to say, does how I score myself, does how you score me, correlate with what we actually see of that individual reality. And so that was many years of refining and validating it until we had items that we were confident with a high level of predictability would say, yes, more than likely when you see someone score that way, you can expect you're going to see this behavior. So what's the difference then in terms of CQ being a measurement that is useful and skill than say IQ, which is just seen as a measurement, can you improve it? What's the difference, would you say? Yeah, so the, the IQ space, as you would know well, Marcia has a lot of controversy over whether or not it's fixed or not. I'll leave that to the people in that area of expertise to, to speak to that. I, I would certainly say I hold very much to a growth mindset that would seem to say there's chances to, to improve. We would absolutely say that cultural intelligence is malleable and you raise an important point I forgot to mention in the research. Because we were looking at skills, we pulled out anything that was explicitly an innate trait, something that is hardwired within me that I can't really change about myself. So by focusing on skills, we said, let's specifically look at things where people with experience, with coaching, with training, with development and intentionality, you can absolutely expect to see growth and improvement. So any score you would get on CQ, I would say to you, with interventions and intentionality, you could see that score improve. So that idea of, of your score improving, what does that research actually say about CQ being useful in helping people work with those who are different from them? Yeah, I, I think there's a number of ways that it could be perceived as useful, but, but one of them is, it was one of my frustrations in the field prior to our development of CQ is there were some other inventories out there and I get the scores and like, okay, I'm really bad at this and I don't really see any way to get better. Whereas ours is all about developmental capability. So uh, there's a couple practical useful things. For one uh, side, I very rarely see a report where someone doesn't score at least moderate or high on some of the capabilities. So it's a morale booster, but it's also an opportunity to say, hey, Actually, maybe I do this area better than I thought he did. How do I leverage that? But then on the other hand, as compared to something like a strength finders inventory that would say, oh, you need to focus on your strengths and leverage these, because CQ is developmental, would be ridiculous to ignore my weaknesses because those are things that can get better. So it allows me to really pinpoint my energy and my development rather than I keep working on this area of knowledge. Actually, my knowledge scored really well. It was over here on strategy that I was weak and I'm, I'm jumping into capabilities that I'm guessing you'll give us a chance to talk about, but just as examples of some of the practice ways that it can be used. You say that the research has been um, ongoing for the last 20 years or so. Um, how much is that 
research peer-reviewed and tested by others? Oh, goodness. <laughs> uh, we have high, high regard for the essential nature that it has to be peer-reviewed. So uh, hundreds of studies now that we're very gratified to say have been published in A-level peer-reviewed journals. Um, and that's, that's really important to us because um, now it goes well beyond the center that I'm privileged to lead where we have 40-some staff, but instead there are now researchers from 50 different countries that have used this in 170 different countries. So the global scope of it has really required an, a community of scholars who have worked together as peers. And then as you know, it's one thing for someone with vested interest to say, no, no, this is valid and it's reliable. It's another whole thing when another group of academic scholars with no vested stake in the cultural intelligence assessment to say, oh no, it actually did predict what it said it was going to predict. Mm. Well, speaking of that assessment, um, people have to do, they, they log onto a portal and, and they um, can measure their CQ um, to, to measure how effective they are working relating with those who are different from them. It shows where they might be in terms of um, you know, the bottom or middle or, or top groupings of the world's respondents. But who are participants actually benchmarking themselves against? Mm. Yeah, excellent question. So when you get a score relative to the global norms in that capability, you're being compared against the 250,000 other individuals who have taken the assessment. Um, why should I care about that? That's a question I often get from people. Like, who are these people? I don't know who these 250,000 are. Well, a couple things. For one thing, nobody ever views your CQ unless they're from the CQ Center, but nobody ever views your CQ in light of what number you got on a particular capability. They compare your CQ with other people that they know. And so what I would say is, well, that does represent a very global uh, community of, of sampling of participants, it does skew more toward the professional community. So it would be important for you to know of how am I faring in this compared to other people who are global professionals working across the world. Um, the other thing I would say though, you, you obviously know this, but important for those across REBA who are thinking about this is you can also get much more specific and look at how your scores compare with other people within your organization or even within your team. And that's when it becomes really interesting. Like, okay, now it really matters to me if I'm scoring above or in the top percentile against my colleagues that I'm working with day in and day out and how's that going to affect the way that they perceive, perceive me, my promotional development opportunities and those kinds of things. And what the assessment shows as well is not just CQ um, ratings across the capabilities, which like you say we'll discuss in a second, but um, preferences around cultural values. Could you explain a little bit more about the cultural values, where they come from? Yeah. So as, as you know, the cultural values profile is entirely separate portion um, from the CQ assessment. So this is measuring purely preferences, not something that we're trying to get people to change. On things like, do I prefer a more individualist approach to my work? Let me work autonomously. Let me kind of do my own thing or a more collectivist. Let's work on a project together all day long through consensus, etc. Many of your listeners will be familiar with this work from the, the works of people like the late Geert Hofstede, Trumpenars, Edward Hall. So there's been a lot of people who have done excellent work on this and we stand on their shoulders to really look at that. What we look at are 10 cultural values that we find have some of the most significance in the workplace for the way that you interact across teams. So it becomes an extremely useful way to say, oh wow, 
I tend toward a more direct communication style, but all my direct reports, all the people I supervise are more indirect. So maybe that's why they keep bristling every time I give them feedback. So it's not about saying I have to entirely change my, my preferred communication style, but I may have to work to take off some of the blunt edge if I hope to motivate these people effectively. And there are 10 cultural values, but like Hofstadter came up with six, I think. Yeah. So where, where do the cultural intelligence you know, find the other four? Yeah, I mean, there are actually a couple dozen of them out there. So we, they, these 10 values, while well, they, they have a lot of overlap with ones that you'll see in some of the other individuals' work, the items for them are things that the Cultural Intelligence Center developed ourselves. Um, and so the, the other four come from places like the Globe Leadership Study. You'll see some similarity from things like Edward Hall's work in, in Trompenars and that. But these were 10 that through our more qualitative work we saw were repeatedly creating interference on teams. And so that's why we decided to develop our own survey to really look at them. And the two really work together effectively, the cultural values and the cultural intelligence, because sometimes when I'll have a group of skeptics who are like, okay, so this is where you come in and tell me how racist I am. Before we even get to that conversation, which I'm quite interested to get into with them, but before we do, it's, hey, before we even start talking about race and privilege and all that, let's just look at the very real value differences that exist. Wouldn't you like to work better with your team? And then suddenly it's like, okay, I'm, I'm all in. If you can help me figure out how to work better with the people who communicate very differently than I do. So you talked about how, um, you know, seeing the assessment is a good opportunity to look at a team and how people might work well together or, or not as the case may be. But what's the difference between um, having a team that comes from a range of backgrounds who are working together without CQ um, as opposed to having a diverse team that does have CQ? Yeah, great question. So I think oftentimes organizations who have suddenly realized the need to begin the EDI journey uh, start appropriately with looking at how white they are or how much they lack diversity and just start to hire a bunch of diverse individuals. The challenge is we've actually found that if you're purely looking at it in terms of productivity, the homogeneous team is much more likely to perform better than the diverse team because it's easy. We don't have to stop and understand what you meant by that comment and how we're going to get from A to Z, etc. And so what we found in this research was more often than not, homogeneous teams were outperforming diverse teams on several different measurements, employee engagement, cost saving, productivity, and innovation, unless cultural intelligence was high. Diverse teams with high CQ way performed, outperformed the homogeneous teams uh, on all these different measurements that we looked at, and in particular, innovation. And that, so it was the cultural intelligence that allowed them to actually utilize the diverse backgrounds and perspectives to lead towards something that would offer them more innovative insights. If they're um, outperforming um, with, uh, well, with CQ, what does that actually look like in terms of outcomes? So if you have a diverse team that's operating with CQ, I think the, the difference in the outcomes is that everybody feels like it's their outcome as compared to, well, you might have a, a racialized group that was a part of something, but the dominant voices were the one whose decision we went with. But more importantly, you, you have a more robust solution that's going to actually meet a diverse 
group of stakeholders. So you've heard me talk about that Amazon for a number of years has had this standing policy of putting an empty chair in the most important leadership meetings to reflect the customer. The problem is all too often people like me assume the customer wants what I want and it may not be the primary demographic whatsoever. So you kind of have a built-in customer perspective when you have cultural intelligence that's actually navigating it. So that would be another outcome that's there. I'd say you're more likely to have a design, a solution, an initiative that's going to already be better suited to a diverse group of stakeholders. So now looking at cultural intelligence itself, it has these four capabilities we talked about, um, the research was done and these four capabilities was identified. So let's go through those. Um, uh, we have CQ drive, CQ knowledge, CQ strategy and CQ action. I don't even know why I'm looking at my sheet of paper, I know this. <laughs> <laughs> but if we can take them one by one, CQ drive, what's that about? Yeah, so, so drive is just the degree to which you're interested and even motivated to understand the background of a colleague. And in one way, this is one of those things from social science research that sounds patently obvious. Like, of course, the culturally intelligent are more interested in people from different backgrounds. But think about how often we overlook that. We so quickly move into, here's what you need to understand about people from a BAME background. Which person from a BAME background? Here's what you need to understand about your millennial workers. Here's what you need to understand about the differently able. And we assume that knowledge by itself is just going to automatically translate into performance and success. So you have to first get at more of that heart issue of, why should I even care and why is your background at all relevant to this work-related project that we're working on? Yeah, essentially, I, I always talk about CQ drive, the motivation about, do you want to? Do you actually want to work and relate with those who are different from you? So um, within CQ drive, um, what, what does that mean? What, what do people have to look at and pinpoint? Well, you know, so you and I might disagree on this and I, I welcome that. In some ways, I would say in a work setting, it might be best if it starts by talking about a very work performance oriented outcome. So I might be more motivated to understand your background if you help me see how knowing that is gonna help me get a better outcome over here. You know, what does it have to do with architecture? You know, like, like I, I'm a good person and I don't wanna be racist. And I wanna understand that, but why am I talking about this at work? So I would say what it looks like in part is getting people very focused on an objective that that team cares about. And then along the way, hopefully we start to also discover like, whoa, you have some great insights that I would love for my kids to learn about or that I could really incorporate into the way that I engage in my community or my faith expression or whatever else it might be. So, so for me, I would say you start with what we measure as the extrinsic interest, what's in it for me to actually do this related to a work-oriented outcome. Because I think too many of our EDI efforts have for too long just used EDI is an end in and of itself and wondered why people are like, we're just doing this to be politically correct instead of saying, well, there are good reasons just to do it, but it will also have good outcomes for us as a team. Yes. Are so you going to disagree with me? <laughs> uh, no, I'm not going to disagree with you. I, obviously, um, 
CQ drive, it's got its um, three uh, subcategories of intrinsic interest, extrinsic interest and self-efficacy. And uh, personally, I'm more driven by the intrinsic because I've always found it quite dehumanising to uh, reduce um, inclusion efforts to what's the bottom line here? Yeah. How, how are we going to get a better productivity outcome, especially from those from, from underrepresented groups? So, um, so uh, if, if, if I have to convince an individual that they have to somehow treat those underrepresented as humans rather than just a number on a balance sheet, then um, that's, that's quite a difficult position for me to take. But if I'm able to inspire and, and convince and uh, create transformative change through saying this is what's great about it, we, we can have an amazing, like, very idealistic, a very utopian idea that we can all work effectively and relate so much better as a society if we treat humans as humans rather than some as uh, better than others. Um, I find that the intrinsic motivators may be more difficult to try to eke out of people but ultimately more long-lasting than saying well um, you know we, we're just going to get a better productivity output there um, so that's how I think CQ drive can be used effectively but really importantly that third piece about self-efficacy mm. because we you've mentioned race a few times and within especially race, I think, more than even gender these days, or, or feminism, um, is that idea of discomfort, that idea of defensiveness, that idea of fear, cancel culture, when, when you get it wrong. So, so talk to me about your view on the self-efficacy subcategory of CQ Drive. Yeah, self-efficacy becomes critically important to all of this. And if I think about talking to people who look like me as compared to talking to people who look like you at the risk of putting either one of us in, in boxes, um, I'm gonna put the onus of responsibility more this way for all the reasons that you just mentioned. And you know that I, I concur with the concern of if this becomes exploitive to just use people of color to come up with a better bottom line. I appreciate and agree with you that that's not a good place to live long term. But because of that history, I think all often the self-efficacy is uh, impacted by marginalized group because here I go again. I'm the one. The, I spend my whole life having to code switch, etc. Um, so really, you're asking me to do the emotional work again to try and adapt. And so I think it comes. Uh, the onus is first and foremost on people. I'll be much harder on people who look like me to say we need to go into the uncomfortable conversation. But but what if someone calls me a racist? Well, get over it. You know, like it's a lot harder to be called some racist epitaph than to once or twice in your life be told that maybe you had a racist thing that was there. So the self-efficacy is difficult because we can feel like, ah, in this charged environment, I don't even know what I can say. But if we aren't willing to have those bold conversations and know we're going to get it wrong some of the time, um, we aren't really going to move anywhere on it. So, I don't, you may have a whole different way you want to go with that conversation, but that was kind of the first thing that came to mind on, on self-efficacy. Well, coming up on Reba Radio around CQ Drive, we will be tackling the issues of fear, 
cancel culture. We'll be looking at discomfort and the idea of white shame, especially around racism. So uh, that's part of it. And we'll also be looking at how we can use a data piece as well to motivate change and how we can intrinsically motivate ourselves towards inclusive change as well. But the second capability, CQ knowledge, I always call this the biggest piece of the puzzle because you can never know everything about everything and everyone, um, which is why we need to surround ourselves with a diversity of lived experience and backgrounds. But how would you describe CQ knowledge? Yeah, I mean, you've described it well. It's, it's the core understanding you need to be able to enter into a room and begin to read people and read a situation. And I'm going to be very susceptible to reading that wrong if I just rely upon the knowledge that I've always kind of known of how you read people, etc. So uh, I, you're right, it, it can be extremely overwhelming. Uh, in part too, it's, it's the area of the four capabilities that people tend to score lowest. The good news is it's also the one that's easiest to improve. We, we, that's why we so often default to it. You can read books, you can go to seminars, you can surround yourself with people from different backgrounds. So what I would say is, at least as a starting point or a next step for people, try not to be so overwhelmed by how am I ever going to possibly know the history of all the different cultural identities that are represented across a place like Reba, et cetera. And instead, that's where we focus on things like these cultural values. All of us have some wiring in us toward one end of these cultural values or another. So we start by, if you can understand some of those core values, and then start to look for indicators of whether or not someone is more risk averse than another person, or whether or not someone prefers a more long-term orientation to how they think about the world of architecture versus a more short-term. That can be a way to make it feel a little bit less daunting. And then to your point, to just kind of fuel your ongoing drive through the knowledge to say, oh, for the rest of my life, there's always more I can be learning about the, this fascinating, diverse world in which we live. So there are um, four subcategories of uh, CQ knowledge. Can you talk me briefly through each of those? Yeah, so uh, at the first level, there's an understanding of different business and, and uh, systems that would be everything from how we do business to how we negotiate to what are the different family systems. I'm no expert on your world of architecture, but I would think there's some immediate correlation there to the different organizations that you're working with and their very different ways of doing culture. And just the way that you build a building in light of the way that business is assumed to be done there and what are the values of what that business is gonna do. The second subdimension is around this area of cultural values. So to what degree do I at least have a basic grasp of being able to figure out, oh, this is a place that's very formal, top down, titles are important, share the business card, look at it, study it, et cetera, versus a much more casual environment. Um, so that, that's the cultural values piece. The third one is sociolinguistics, which would certainly uh, relate to the degree to which I speak languages other than my own, but could also be, do I know the nomenclature in the architectural realm? Uh, to what degree can I uh, say something in a way that won't be offensive to a person because of the power dynamics that exist between us? You know, it's very simply from how I talk to my 22-year-old is very different from how I talk to a 52-year-old colleague, my 22-year-old daughter as compared to a 50. We, we do that all the time, and this is saying to what degree do I have the knowledge of how to do that when I'm interacting with different people in the workplace? And uh, then the final one is my understanding of leadership and how does leadership need to vary 
And many of us tend to default toward the leadership style that we prefer rather than understanding that that might not be a very effective way of influencing other people. So the knowledge is to what degree do I have an understanding of you may prefer to be led in a way that's very different from how I prefer to lead. But good leaders, they, they adapt their style all the time. So what's the difference between being an adaptive leader without CQ and one that adapts with CQ? Yeah, so one of the things that sometimes drives people nutty is just how much leaders rely on their gut to read a situation. And uh, the surprising thing is research says that the gut actually is a pretty good barometer for a seasoned leader to read a situation and to adapt kind of on the fly unless there are cultural differences involved. And so the very thing that's said to you in the past, those people are about ready to sign or those people are disengaged, may actually mean something entirely different. So it's just an additional tool to put in your adaptive leadership style. Yeah, there's many other ways that leaders have already learned to adapt, but without understanding the cultural differences, there may be a critical piece that you're missing light of. So at Rebe Radio, around CQ knowledge, we'll be looking at the diversity of lived experiences, how the underrepresented in architecture um, can be more represented, and the impact of that underrepresentation. So we'll be examining the lives of women, the gender pay gap, the pressure of unpaid care. We'll be looking at race and racism with the science journalist uh, Angela Saini, um, and we'll be exploring social mobility in the profession as well as LGBT. LGBTQ plus lives and disability. The third capability, CQ strategy. I always call this the most important of the CQ puzzle because if you're motivated and you have some knowledge and you go straight into action without CQ strategy, you're likely to act in a stereotypical and tokenistic way. What's your take? On CQ well, I, I'm with you. It's, it's my favorite anyway, because I feel like this is what really filled in the gap for me when we began to look at the research findings. Of course, you know that the technical term here is metacognition. Can I think about thinking? So I come in and I say, oh, I'm going to be meeting with a British individual from Reba. Oh, but you don't look like what I expected in British. Now, I wonder if I should suddenly speak to someone who's Caribbean maybe, but I'm not entirely sure. So strategy is, I come in with some kind of best guess about the kind of culture that I'm going to be interacting with, but can I adapt on the fly based upon the cues that I'm receiving? So strategy is all about, I go into this meeting anticipating what's going to be appropriate for the context and the little bit of background that I have on an individual. In the midst of it, am I aware of myself and the other individual and am I reading the cues accurately? And then can I adjust as needed and find ways to check for understanding? So the strategy piece really is the hinge pin between translating my motivation and understanding into can I actually act in a way that's culturally intelligent? I like to use Eisenhower at this point, he said planning is everything but the plan is nothing. So mm. thinking about all the different scenario that can come up. And uh, there are three um, uh, subcategories to CQ strategy, planning, uh, self-awareness and uh, checking your assumptions. And checking your assumptions, it, I mean, it's massive, isn't it? I, I like to quote, well, great for a quote, uh, Timothy Wilson, um, who's professor of mm. psychology at the University of Virginia. He wrote the book, Stranger to Ourselves, Discovering the Adaptive 
unconscious. And he wrote that about 20 years ago um, with, with this idea that we have 11 million bits of information going into our brain at any given moment, mm. but the conscious capacity to process just 40. And so we're, we're shortcutting information all the time. Uh, or if, you know, it's a, a, a biological cerebral need to, to make assumptions, to fill in gaps ourselves. And, and when we're particularly under stress, this is, this is when we're doing that. So what would you say were the main ways that people could check their assumptions? Mm. Part of it is just making a very conscious effort to stop oneself in the midst of it and say, it appears to me X, but before I act on that assumption, I need to figure out whether or not that's actually true. Because to your point, we're, we're making split judgments all the time. And this is actually where CQ strategy becomes mo one of the most powerful tools to manage unconscious bias. Yes, we all have implicit biases, but with strategy, I'm stopping to, to actually acknowledge the fact that I'm biased toward thinking that means you're rude or that means you're incompetent. And I need to check that out before I, I just follow up on that. I would say another way that you can actually um, employ the checking or the suspending of assumptions is before any individuals are involved to write up some objective criteria. So we often talk about this in the hiring process. Before you even get involved in who you're going to hire, have some very objective criteria that everybody signs off on and agree on. And then as you begin to talk about, oh, she's the perfect fit, or we really need to look at that. Well, help me understand that because three of our criteria aren't aligned at all with what this individual has. So it now kind of creates an accountability piece that, that helps us check on that. So those are a couple ways. It's a very kind of methodical checklist approach to kind of put the brakes on what our brains are doing to quickly to, to default to assuming what's there. And self-awareness, also very important. Um, asking yourself, you know, what, what am I actually bringing to the party? And I'm often asked how EQ, emotional intelligence, is different from CQ, cultural intelligence. Um, but this is in fact where they, they overlap. And can you explain the relationship between the two here? Absolutely. So there's, there's all kinds of correlation, and we've looked at it in the research, between emotional intelligence and cultural intelligence. And I would say it has to begin with emotional intelligence. Emotional intelligence, as you've noted, is the awareness of my own emotional state, my ability to manage that, and my ability to pick up on someone else's emotional state and ability to manage it. Where CQ picks up is where EQ leaves off. And there's no research in the emotional intelligence work that indicates my ability to manage and detect your emotional state is going to be accurate if you come from a, an unfamiliar cultural background than me. So I might assume that your silence means you're giving me the silent treatment. You may actually presume that you're being respectful to me because I haven't actually asked you to say anything yet. So um, it is where they overlap. The self-awareness, emotional intelligence always has to be a part of what I'm doing engaged in that. It's also um, being aware that I can't have this conversation right now because I'm too fatigued and I'm, I'm going to be too abrupt with someone. So it's having that awareness of maybe today isn't the best time for me to engage in this. And then cultural intelligence is more about can I detect the emotional state of someone who's unfamiliar with me and, and mitigate some of the um, friction that might happen as we compare our emotions with one another. 
And on Reba Radio, we'll be exploring how you can use CQ strategy planning, just like Dave says, in inclusive recruitment, in architectural education, uh, as well as checking our assumptions about architecture outside of London, uh, internationally, as well as looking policy making around the menopause, and then self-awareness around the impact uh, discriminatory behaviour can have. And the final CQ uh, capability, CQ action, ultimately we actually have to do the work. We have to put these behaviours into action to be more inclusive and, and this involves putting in you know, a, a few different steps. So summarise CQ action for me. Yeah, CQ action is the degree to which I can adapt my behavior as needed when the situation requires it. And it's, it's important to put those qualifications in because we don't want cultural appropriation. We don't want you know, people like me to think I can suddenly pretend I have a British accent or something, you know, to, to use a very benign example, but much more so to suddenly be placating someone's interest. But on the other hand, if I'm not willing to adapt and accommodate at all a difference, then I don't have cultural intelligence at all. So you're right, the, the action piece is ultimately the only thing that your coworkers, your clients, your stakeholders really care about. Did you behave in a way that was true to yourself? You weren't trying too hard to fit in, but demonstrated you could offer flexibility when you saw that my preference was different than yours. That's a really important point you just made there because people from underrepresented groups, um, whether in architecture or outside, the so women racialized groups in particular, we can spend a lot of time doing uh, what's been described as coding. So uh, an adaptation that's rooted in, in hiding who we are in order to fit in. What's the difference between those kinds of actions and then uh, CQ action adaptation? Yeah, so I actually think code switching or, or coding is an example of CQ action, though the motivation behind it might be less than what we would hope for. And I often say, realizing that this could come off the wrong way, but to underrepresented groups, you already have an edge on knowing how to do this because you've been doing it your whole life. Where I demonstrate, I hope, some sensitivity to that is, and I don't want the onus to only be on you to have to be the one who continues to do that. So I think to your point, CQ action and a, a place that's truly about equity, diversity, and inclusion eventually needs to get to the place of, but you shouldn't have to cover who you are. You shouldn't have to say, oh, I have to temper down what I'm really thinking here because the white guys in the room can't handle it or some other cultural group. You want you to be able to bring your full self, but that we've together agreed upon some norms of, hey, we're all going to use a modicum of respect, so let's talk about why it is that you felt the most respectful way was to be very blunt, and I felt like it was to be you know, very diplomatic and talk about that, etc. So we need some kind of shared norms um, that we're agreeing to adapt ourselves to, the challenge is all too often that the norms default to the dominant culture. And so if we're really going to be about EDI, we have to take a critical eye on those norms and say, are they really uh, about what is the most global approach to respect or is it just the way certain people think that respect should be done? So long answer to your question, I think coding is an example of CQ action in that it's, oh, how do I say this in a way that will make sense to them? but we eventually want to get to a place where people are free to be themselves and don't have to cover the authenticity of who they actually are. 
And CQ action has uh, three subcategories, uh, speech acts, uh, verbal and non-verbal behaviours. Um, and I tend to talk about the Albert Morabian uh, communication model of 55% body language, 38% uh, um, tone and 7% the actual message content in terms of the, the different types of ways that communication put together, and especially when you're sending an email, for example, that's only the 7% of the message, and we infer tone, and it's not always implied, and certainly the way that we feel about the person sending the message then uh, can, can have a, an impact. Um, but culture um, influences how body language might be interpreted or, or how tone might be interpreted. So what do we need to think about here? Yeah, so I think this is where the model really requires all four capabilities because you're going to have a really difficult time knowing the appropriate behavior if you don't have the knowledge in the first place that helps inform that and the strategy helps translate into a, a way to interact accordingly. I think it's also finding ways to have, to come back to the drive, the self-efficacy to engage in conversations with a diverse team about what kind of behaviors make you feel respected, disrespected, what kind of tone of voice. Perhaps you've heard me share the illustration before of one time I was leading one of our CQ certification programs. You were not a part of this one. Um, but uh, a woman of color was asking me a question and I wasn't giving her the response she wanted. And she continued to keep coming back to me and say, but you're not understanding what I'm asking you. And so I took a, another attempt. There was maybe three times back and forth. And by the time she got to the third time, she was speaking quite loudly to me as she gave her point. And I was trying to, what I thought, to diffuse the situation. I'm like, okay, don't yell at me. I'm just trying to understand. And she stopped and she looked at me and she's like, you assume I'm yelling right now. I was one of eight kids in an African-American family. If I didn't raise my voice, I wasn't heard. And so I'm just expressing to you my enthusiasm for wanting to get this information. And I have no idea if she was upset with me and she has no idea whether or not I, we, we rushed to some assumptions that were there, but it was a reminder that my behavior, having been brought up in a very kind of British traditional Canadian home was, we keep a calm tone of voice, even when you're very upset with someone, you need to keep it together. And I was assuming automatically because her volume went up, she was upset. So I think it's those kinds of rich conversations. And she and I ended up having a fascinating conversation after the fact and ended up collaborating together on a research project. But rather than being fearful of the conversation, we one-on-one -on -one talked about it later and talked about how my response to her actually caused her to feel that I was entirely missing the point and was not understanding at all what her nonverbal behavior meant. On Reba Radio, amongst other things, we'll be looking at adaptations that work, how underrepresented can be better supported, and the actions that uh, result in inclusive outcomes, rather like the way that you uh, manage that situation there. But everything isn't always rosy in CQ world, and sometimes there's some serious questions that yeah. come back at us about, well, what is this all about? And really, what are we trying to do here? Now, the CQ materials, you go on the portal, they're very American in their outlook. How are other cultures and, and nationalities supposed to navigate it? Yeah, so this, this is certainly something that strikes right at the core of, of my heart. The Cultural Intelligence Center obviously needs to bear in mind whether or not we ourselves are culturally intelligent in the way that people access our tools. So a couple things. First of all, I would say 
um, as I mentioned at the very beginning, that the origins of the model itself and even many of the ways that we express the model and the materials are rooted in our work with our colleagues in Singapore, which is a very global team of Europeans, Asians, Middle Easterns, as well as Americans. So there might be a little bit of confirmation bias there, people coming into a US organization going, oh, it's, it's American. Having said that, I certainly can see some very real examples where it's true. And it's one of the key priorities that we've given to our director of our UK programs, Ratika Wadwa, who has also voiced some of these concerns and we've asked her to really help us take a look and say how do we make a very specific British friendly understanding and we're talking about the same thing with our colleagues in South Africa also in India and other parts of Asia so we're, we're really trying to put this to practice of saying you have to localize it there will never be any such thing as a global uh, much less thinking that the American is global approach and we're having some of these talks inside that we talk to our clients about like what do we look at that we can live with that gives us a shared global language and understanding but then as it gets into details and the actual tools and representation make sure that it takes on the local flavors and cultures of the places where we work and uh, another criticism that's come in it's been noted that you've done a lot of work with those of Christian faith so how do you answer the criticism that CQ in mission work as it's been noted in some of your your early um, texts um, mission work can be seen as neo-colonial. Should we be using CQ for this? Oh, I love this question. <laughs> so this is one that keeps me up at night because I, I wrestle with it very much myself at a personal level. I've been very much on my own journey of faith and you and I have, have talked some about that. A couple things I would say. First of all, understand that the, the Cultural Intelligence Center itself reflects people from a lot of different faiths. We have people on our staff who are devout Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, agnostics, etc., and yes, Christians. Um, another thing I would say is that for the Christians that are most actively using this as a part of their ministries, and even the books that I wrote 10 years or so, or so uh, about this, the primary lens was oriented around neo-colonialist concerns that exist in Christian mission. And in point of fact, the organizations that are most actively using it are saying, it's time to start to stop doing white man missions all over the world. And how do you hear the voices of what they often call the Southern Church in places like India, Sub-Saharan Africa, Latin America, etc., that obviously have some core beliefs that are similar to Western Christians, but expressions and other approaches that are very, very different. So it's actually them trying to confront, at least within the Christian faith itself, some of the neo-colonialism that's there. Beyond that, I, I certainly take and accept the critique of, okay, but is even perpetuating the Christian faith, period, uh, neo-colonialist. I think that's a very fair question to be asked, and it's the same question that I ask the military groups of which we're a part, the corporations of which we're a part, and what I will say is, well, I'm very interested and I engage in those conversations at a personal level because it strikes, as I said, right at the core of my own background and calling. At the Cultural Intelligence Center itself, we have never gotten engaged in whether or not your mission is right. I may weigh in on it and ask you about it, but the Cultural Intelligence Center, our, our driving research question was, um, to what degree were they effective being able to accomplish their mission in a culturally diverse context? We didn't get into, and do you have the right mission at REBA? Do you have the right mission at the United Methodist Church? Do you have the right mission at the US Department of Defense? I'm interested in that and I'll want to poke holes in it, but Cultural Intelligence has said, 
you have this mission, it may or may not be one that we agree with, but to what degree were you able to effectively accomplish that in, in culturally diverse contexts? That's my very long take on, on that. Well, I guess we can continue that another time. Yes, please. <laughs> um, so the assessment itself, how accessible is the assessment and e-learning for the neurodiverse, for those with other conditions, um, you know, that might make it difficult to navigate online content? Yeah, excellent question. And that's uh, an area we're making progress, but I think it's probably one of the areas that we're still weakest in. Um, so we definitely are working to make sure all of our assessments and our e-learnings are compliant um, and as accessible as possible to groups that have a variety of different abilities, as you've noted. Um, we have had some instances where individuals who are at various places along the spectrum or have different aspects where they find themselves within neurodiversity where uh, they may have done an audible version of the assessment or a Scantron version on paper, but that's not scalable. We have to work through much more scalable initiatives on that. Because we're researchers at heart, we don't want to be too quick to just put a Band-Aid on something that isn't really getting at the core of what's going to truly address that. So there's some research that's being done. Also some research that's asking to what degree does CQ link to your ability to effectively work with people who, ref who reflect uh, neurodiversity and, and other abilities. So it's very much on our radar. It's one of our strategic priorities. We've made some baby steps in moving in that direction, but much more that needs to happen and much more that you should expect to see and continue to hold us accountable for. Um, now, these criticisms are more about access to CQ and the use of it rather than the fundamental um, principles of CQ itself. But then what other concerns should we be thinking about when thinking about CQ if you're to apply CQ lens to yeah. CQ? No, it's a great question. I, I sometimes say there's some people who are more committed to CQ than I am. And what I mean by that is I'm, I'm deeply committed to the work that we've been able to do, but it's a tool. It's one part of an effective EDI strategy. So if you look at this as the silver bullet that cultural intelligence alone will assess and be the strategy for everything, no, it has to fit in with the intentional behavior and people who actually make it happen and other strategies and models that I know you're incorporating as part of the work that you're doing here. So let me give you a more specific example of that. I often look at our work in CQ and people will appropriately ask the question, so where does power fit into this, power dynamics, social justice. And I can make it fit within the model. Oh, so much of the drive is who has the power here and how do I interface with that. So much of my knowledge is am I aware of the power dynamics. My, my colleague Ratika and I, we both come from the same uh, organization and we're still both representing the same thing, but we have different levels of power in the organization. We have different uh, culturally ascribed power given to us based upon our ethnic and national backgrounds. So I think that has to be factored in. And we can talk about it as part of cultural intelligence, but you could look through our materials, you could look through our assessment, and you could think that it's not there at all. So it's, it's not a one-size-fits-all. It's an important tool that I think is a critical tool in the toolbox and is a strategic link to effective EDI work. But anyone who thinks that it alone is going to be the answer is, is going to be solely disappointed. Yeah, well, I think, you know, no model is foolproof and ultimately inclusive change, like you say, can only happen um, if we're rowing in the same direction and people take individual personal responsibility for, for um, you know, making that change to be inclusive. 
Um, but CQ is proven to work in terms of working and relating effectively with those who are different from you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, that's what you can be confident of is there's very robust peer-reviewed research that says, yeah, more than likely the way someone scores on this assessment is predictive of how they interact in a culturally diverse situation environment. What's next for CQ then? What's next? Oh, there's so many things on the horizon. Part of it are the questions that you asked about. How do we take a harder look at localizing CQ to the various places we're working around the world? Um, on the research horizon, one of the areas we've been looking most at in recent years is what does a culturally intelligent organization look like? So you and I can be doing our very best to apply our CQ, but we do that within an environment. And if the leadership and if the structure is not conducive to that, then even the most highly culturally intelligent individuals are only going to be able to go so far. So uh, Soon Ang, Lynn Vendine and I are right in the midst of writing up some of the findings from the research on a culturally intelligent organization. I think that's going to be a really critical piece that has both academic and, a, and applied benefit. So those are a, a couple of the things that are, are on the near horizon. So a summary that I tend to use to describe how CQ best fits into, uh, into the bigger, wider EDI strategy is to say if diversity is the mix of visible and invisible difference and is the landscape in which we're working and inclusion is the road through that diversity to our destination of equity or equitable outcomes, then CQ is the best, most robust vehicle to get us there. And so here at Reba Radio, the door is open and we're going to start you on that journey. Thank you very much indeed, Thank David Livermore, for joining Thank you so much. You're listening to Reba Radio, real inclusive, brilliant action.